1: Welcome back to the Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor David Beale to talk about his recent book, Chassidism A New History, published in 2018 by Princeton University Press. Professor Beal is the Emanuel Ringelblum Distinguished Professor of Jewish History and the Director of the Jewish Studies Program at the University of California, Davis. He's the author of many acclaimed books, including Not in the Heavens The Tradition of Jewish Secular Thought, also published by Princeton University Press and a forthcoming biography of Gershon Sholem in the Jewish Lives series by the Yale University Press. The volume under discussion today, Hasidism, A New History, is the result of a monumental collaborative effort by seven scholars over the course of many years to compose a total history of Hasidism from its origins to the present day. The team included David Beale, David Asaf, Benjamin Brown, Uriel Gelman, Samuel Halman, Moshe Rosman, Gadi Sagiv, and Marcion Wojinski. As we'll discuss, Hasidism is a Jewish pietistic movement born in the mid-18th century that captured the hearts and minds of Eastern European Jewry and engendered significant opposition as well. Sourced in the Jewish mystical tradition and centered around charismatic local leaders, the movement formed and continues to form the intellectual ideology and daily lives of individuals and communities across the world. Our book today shows the ways in which this movement, in its many flavors, was fluid enough to adapt to distinct geographies and new social, cultural, and political problems. I enjoyed reading the book very much, and I'm happy to have Professor Beale with us today. Good morning, Professor Beale.
0: Uh, good morning.
1: To begin, um, can you discuss with us a little bit about how you came to write the book? Um, what was the intervention you intended to make? Um, and what was it like working as a collaborative effort?
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, back in uh, the academic year 2007-8, uh, uh, there was a, a group at the Israel Institute for Advanced Study that um, on the subject of Hasidism. And <clears throat> some members of that group uh, decided at the time uh, that uh, research had advanced sufficiently to make it possible to actually write a synthetic history of all uh, of the history of Hasidism, something that had never been done, Uh, as I'll discuss in a a moment. Um, So uh, that group um, began to work um, and uh, they needed someone who could sort of organize them. And that's how I came in. They uh, they drafted me uh, as the the project director. Hasidism is an area in which I had written several articles, but uh, was not my main area of research. Uh, But I felt I knew uh, just enough about it to be able to, to serve as project director. And during the Course of the uh, of the writing, I learned an enormous amount about Hasidism and feel very grateful for that. So, what happened was, um, uh, I was of the opinion that <clears throat> what we ought to write was not a anthology of essays um, or an encyclopedia of Hasidism, but rather um, a history with one narrative voice, uh, a history that would be written collectively because it was impossible. Um, to for one person to write this history, there's so many different aspects geographically and in terms of the number of courts and so on. Uh, it required a team with people with expertise in different areas. <clears throat> and so my idea was that we we were going to form a team, but the team was going to be actually a collective author. Um, <clears throat> now, how to do this? Um, so this was my second idea that the way you had to do it was to um, Bring people to a place that wasn't their home uh, so they didn't have all the distractions of home, uh, that was interesting but not too interesting. Um, And uh, as a result, I worked with the Simon Dubnov Institute in Leipzig. to write a number of grant proposals, and we were funded uh, for th- four summer residencies in the uh, Institute in Leipzig. By the way, Leipzig actually is very interesting, a uh, wonderful place to work. Um, so we spent four summers there, um, ranging between two and a half to four weeks each time. <clears throat> uh, and we uh, basically worked together very intensively. Um, we did a elaborate table of contents, and then we uh, divided up the writing. But uh, uh, every chapter was almost immediately refereed by people on the same team. We divided ourselves into three teams, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Uh, so everyone on each of those teams read everyone else's work, and there were a number of us who read the whole thing a number of times. Um so as a result, we were able to produce a book um, that is collectively authored uh, as project director and sort of general editor. I rewrote the book several times, so it really does read as if it's uh, one author rather than eight. Um, so let me say a word now about um, the uh, the historiography and where we position ourselves on this book. Um, <clears throat> so... The uh, the first history of Hasidism was by Simon Dubnov, um, uh, published in 1931. It was uh, written in Hebrew, um, published simultaneously in German. Um, Dubnov's history only goes to the year 1815, and in fact, the other histories that came subsequently, for example, Gershom Scholem's work on Hasidism, Hasid, uh, Hasidic thought, um, <clears throat> uh, Martin Buber's work, and and many others, ten almost all focused only on the 18th century because they believed that that was the creative period of Hasidic history. And they tended to view the 19th and 20th century as uh, sort of degenerate forms of the movement. Now, as a result of the uh, more recent research uh, done primarily by people on our uh, on our team, um, we believe that this is a, an inaccurate uh, way of approaching Hasidism. Yes, of course, the 18th century was creative, particularly in terms of Hasidic thought. But the main um, features of the movement, which I, uh, we'll talk about later on, um, really develop in the 19th century. And um, so we regard the 19th century as a kind of golden age of Hasidism, not a, a period of degeneration. And, um, uh, we also focus um, not only on Hasidic thought, which tended to be the focus of earlier histories. Uh, we do treat Hasidic thought um, in in great detail, but uh, we also focus on the social history of the movement, uh, the structural uh, features, institutional features of Hasidism. Uh, so that gives you a sort of overall idea um, what we... If the 19th century was treated very sparingly by other uh, earlier historians, the same could be said about the 20th century. And so we're also filling in an enormous gap there. With all that said, um, there's still some uh, areas that are under-researched and uh, which we were not able to fully fill in. Uh, And of course, there'll be lots of work for future historians.
1: You open the volume with an introductory essay entitled Hasidism as a Modern Movement. And I was wondering if we can begin with this. Um, what do you mean when you refer to it as modern? Uh, what does it mean that Hasidism is a movement?
0: Okay, uh, so <clears throat> first of all, Hasidism uh, presents itself uh, and presented itself already in the latter part of the 19th century as a movement uh uh, of resistance against modernization. Um, <clears throat> and today it's certainly seen as if you were to ask people what they think is the primary characteristic of Hasidism, they would say, well, this is a movement uh, against modernity, a movement that, that uh, is a throwback, is a an attempt to preserve um, older tradition. Now, all that is true. Uh, Hasidism certainly has formed as a movement of resistance to modernity, but our argument is that that resistance is itself modern. Uh, Hasidism, uh, the the kind of social structure we find in Hasidism, the the Rebbe or Tzaddik, the leader of the court, uh, the very court system, uh, which we'll talk about later, um, the... um, uh, the followers who are di- uh, dispersed uh, widely geographically, um, who make pilgrimage to the court—all of these features of Hasidism, on the uh, from the point of view of, of uh, its social institutions, uh, all of that is new. Um, furthermore, the way in which Hasidism is has chosen to resist modernity is using the tools of modernity, political organizing, political activism, uh, lobbying. Uh, all of these um, activities, although they have some resemblance to earlier shtadlanut uh, intercession or lobbying that was uh, characteristic of uh, medieval early modern Jewish communities, <clears throat> the way in which Hasidism goes about doing that actually is, is totally modern. So, uh, in our view, Hasidism is an integral, essential part of modern Jewish history. It it is not simply a throwback, um, because in many ways, Hasidism, as it exists today, uh, is itself a kind of invention, uh, a modern invention, some of it even invented after World War II. Um, And and in that sense, we call it uh, not a movement of tradition, but a movement of traditionalism, that is, that attempts to um, argue for itself as the guardians of tradition, but that guardianship
1: is uh, is itself new. Before we take a look at the book in detail, can you give us a sense of the general ethos of Hasidism, its beliefs and practices, its rituals and institutions? In a sense, we could ask what holds the different varieties of Hasidism together as one movement?
0: So this is a, an excellent question. And in fact, Hasidism um, uh, does not form originally as a movement. That is part of our argument, actually. Um, uh, it only evolves into a movement gradually. Um, and one of its characteristics, its central characteristic, really, I would say, is that it is a movement of movements. Um it is, uh, uh, it's a movement that um, consists of many different leaders, uh, many different courts, many different groups of followers, and um, uh, so that in a sense there there is no central you know uh, institution of Hasidism where one can point to it and say okay these are the characteristics both of the structure and and thought. Um, with that said the the fact that it is a fragmentary movement or a movement of movements there are some common features i've already alluded to the uh institution of, of the uh the rebbe or the tzaddik uh his court uh his followers the rituals of pilgrimage uh to the court these uh form, these are characteristics that uh, begin to form in the latter part of the 18th century. They're not necessarily there originally, but they do form uh, later on. Um, in terms of Hasidic thought or teaching, the uh, individual who is uh, thought by the Hasidim, and indeed by most historians to be the founder of Hasidism, Israel Baal Shem Tov, uh, a figure who lived between about the year 1700 and uh, died in 1760. Um, the Baal Shem Tov uh, emerged out of a prior movement of piety, also called Hasidism. We we say Hasidism with a small H instead of a capital H. This movement of piety was characterized by um, uh, figures who pursued a kind of very ascetic lifestyle, um, um, self-mortification, self-mortification, um, uh, penances for sins. Um, these people also, some of them practiced magic. They were called baal Shem, people who could manipulate the divine name. Um, and Israel Baal-Shemtov, as his, name, his, his title or nickname suggests, was uh, himself part of that movement of earlier Hasidism with a small H. But he uh, deviated from it in an important way. Um, <clears throat> he rejected the uh, penances, the asceticism of his milieu, and argued instead, as he wrote in an uh, important letter to uh, one of his um, followers or companions, Yakov uh, Yosef of Pol- Polnoi, um, that one should worship God with joy rather than in sadness. This is a very, very important feature of the movement starting at its very origins. And this leads to practices, rituals uh, of prayer that involve song and dance. Uh, these are two features of Hasidism, which um, uh, contemporaries already noted in the late 18th century uh, and continue to this day. Um, with all that said, though, uh, we, cannot, uh, we, we cannot state that that particular teaching of the Baal Shem Tov Um, was necessarily uh, adopted by all Hasidic leaders after him. For example, the Magid of Mezrish, Dov Ber, one of uh, the companions of the Besht, who goes on to found a kind of a court of his own and had disciples who go out and actually create the movement after his death. Um, He was a pretty ascetic uh, leader. And uh, his views uh, actually depart from those of the Baal Shem Tov on this matter. And we find in later Hasidic history, uh, others who are much more ascetical than in the case of the Balshemtov. Now, there's one other uh, um, feature of Hasidic thought. Uh, I mean, there, there are many features, but this, I think, is a, is a central one. And that is... Um, God's imminence. That God is to be found everywhere in the world. Um, and that one can worship God through everyday acts um, like, um, like eating uh, and drinking. Uh, even uh, as one famous uh, story says, one goes to the Rebbe to watch how he ties his shoes. Uh, <clears throat> so these everyday acts uh, are, are filled with potential divinity and this also is a very important teaching of Hasidism. It, it draws upon earlier uh, Kabbalah, earlier Jewish mysticism, but it is now popularized, um, uh, you know, made a kind of uh, 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 feature of the popular, of the, the mass character of the movement. Um, so these would be some of the, the features I would, I would emphasize in terms of Hasidic ethos, as we call it, uh, or thought.
1: Could you give us a sense of the periodization of the movement, uh, its origins, and then it's the creation of the court and the movement as a whole, and then as you talk about in the book, it's institutionalization and the variations of of Hasidism, uh, all the way to its sort of death during the Holocaust and uh, rebirth afterwards?
0: Yes. So um, one of the arguments uh, of our book, uh, it's an argument that has been made by several historians, including uh, some members of our team. Uh, in earlier work uh, is that the bal Shemtov actually did not set out to found a movement he had I, I am using the term companions uh, people who gathered around him in a kind of circle um, these people were not necessarily disciples in the way we we think of later um, the term chassid, by the way comes to mean disciple uh, its original meaning, being pious, uh, a pious person, but it acquires a secondary meaning of a disciple of, uh, a Hasid of. Um, so he does not set out to found a movement. Um, and uh, those of his companions who uh, outlive him, uh, such as Dovber, the Magid of Mesrch, probably also do not see themselves as part of a movement. Um in 1772, the year that Dovber dies, there is a um, the first um, uh, manifestations of opposition to Hasidism. Uh, this is a subject that is al- also interesting unto itself. Why did it, did it arouse opposition? Um, in any case, this opposition is led by uh, Elijah, the Gaon of Vilna, the uh, preeminent rabbinic authority uh, of the age. Um, and uh, it is entirely possible that this is one reason Hasidism begins to think of itself as a movement. In other words, the fact that it, it is engendered opposition means that uh, the Hasidic leaders need to think of themselves as maybe representing something that uh, unified that is being uh, opposed. And the Magid of Mesrach a half year before his death uh, convenes in Rovna a um, a, a meeting of some of his primary disciples um, to figure out how to oppose the opposition, how to counter the opposition to Hasidism. Um, and this may be the first point in which people begin to think of themselves as, as constituting a, a part of a movement. Uh, later on, I, it's, it's a... Quite a bit of time later, I would say, uh, maybe even in the early 18th century, that uh, the Balshemtov is uh, seen as a founder, and there are legends that emerge uh, and are finally written down and published in 1814 um, of the Balshemtov as a founder of the movement. And and in order to have a movement, you need a founder, and so the Balshemtov comes to f- fill that uh, that role. Um, so. The growth of the movement actually is very slow, we think, in the latter part of the last quarter of the 18th century. Um, The institutions of Hasidism, I would call them a kind of proto-courts. They are not yet full-blown courts, um, but they're beginning to form in that direction. Um, And uh, the Magid is actually the first to hold a kind of court – the uh, Jewish Enlightenment uh, thinker, uh, Solomon Maimon, visits the, the, uh, the court of the Magid and he writes in his autobiography of that experience. So there's clearly something already starting at that point. But the full-blown um, institutions of Hasidism really are um, really are in the early 19th century. Um, Uh, And it's at that point that you get courts that are uh, in some cases very opulent, uh, very ramified in terms of the physical structures, uh, the many different functionaries of the court, um, the pilgrimage, mass pilgrimage to the court. All of this is there in kind of in Nuce in uh, in the late 18th century, but really, really flowers and develops in in the 19th century. And so this is one of the reasons that we see the 19th century as the Golden Age. This is the point at which Hasidism becomes a mass movement. Um, It's entirely possible in the late 18th century that most Jews of Eastern Europe have not even heard of Hasidism. Um, They have also probably not heard of the opposition to Hasidism because the opposition, if you take a look at it, only really – Exists in a, in about three places in the town of Brody, Shklov, and Vilna, the city of Vilna. Um, so, the uh, in the 18th century, uh, the vast majority of Jews are probably uh, ignorant of Hasidism and ignorant of the conflict with the with its opponents. In the 19th century, interestingly, the movement of opposition basically fades away. Um, its place is taken by the New Jewish Enlightenment, which sees Hasidism as a kind of a, a, an enemy because it represents to them the most uh, superstitious, backward, medieval uh, uh, aspect of, of Jewish society. Um, but Has- it's in the 19th century that Hasidism now begins to really win followers on a mass scale. How many? Hard to say. Um We think that in the areas where Hasidism is particularly active, that maybe thirty to forty percent of the Jewish community by around 1850 affiliates in some form or the other with Hasidism. I I put it that way because it's you know you're not given a a membership card, Um, and so how does one determine who is a Hasid? Uh, someone who pay who makes pilgrimage to the court for sure, but there were people who were not uh, Hasidim who went to the court, including Christians. Um, so it's a little bit hard to define in, in the 19th century, but um, it does become a uh, a movement that that uh, wins uh, mass following uh, in various areas of Eastern Europe. Now. Um, Hasidism falls on hard times by the end of the 19th century, uh, mainly because of the impoverishment of uh, the Jews of Eastern Europe, uh, especially in the Russian Empire. Um, And so these opulent uh, regal courts, as we call them, are not able to sustain themselves any longer. Um, In World War I, uh, uh, the war has a, a terrible uh, effect on the Jews of Eastern Europe. We, we generally know about the Western Front, trench warfare, uh, but in the east on the Eastern Front um, the uh, civilian population suffered uh, terribly and uh, this includes the Jews and, and certainly the Hasidim. And so one of the consequences of this was something that we didn't see much before and that is um, relocation of Hasidism to cities. Hasidism becomes now for the first time an urban phenomenon. Uh, courts moved to Vienna, to Warsaw. Um, and uh, so when we come to the, the interwar period, uh, Hasidism has a, has a somewhat different profile. Of course, it's still out in the, in the Shetlach, in the small towns, uh, but it is now more of an urban phenomenon. Um, but the interwar period is itself a period of uh, tremendous stress, Uh, After the Bolshevik Revolution, the Hasidic groups who are um, uh, dominant in uh, Russia, um, Chabad, uh, Chernobyl, uh, uh, Bratislav, um, these movements have to either flee or go underground because of the religious persecution of the uh, communist authorities. Uh, In Poland, which is where Hasidism continues to flourish, there are still enormous stresses uh, the Polish Jews of the interwar period are undergoing a uh, process of secularization, modernization, um, politicization. Uh, people abandon religion and embrace new political ideologies like communism, uh, Bundism, Zionism. And so Hasidism is now losing um, losing followers. It feels itself very much under stress. And then comes the Holocaust, which, um, although it's impossible to give numbers, uh, there's no question that the vast, vast majority of Hasidim are murdered uh, by the Nazis. Um, and then after the war, one would have thought that this movement was, for all intents and purposes, finished. Uh, and yet we find a remarkable uh, uh resurgence, renaissance of Hasidism in the um, in the post-war period uh, to the point where a movement that probably came out of the war with only a few thousand survivors um, is today in our estimation um, a movement of some 700,000 uh, people, which is, is astonishing uh, growth. Um, Initially, the growth was through recruitment among other Orthodox Jews who were not necessarily Hasidim before the war. Uh, but um, increasingly, of course, as a result of, of natural growth of high fertility rate—you um, uh, know, ten to fifteen children per family—so uh, uh, Hasidism and, and of course, in the, the, the post-war period, we enter into an entirely new age in terms of where the Hasidim live. They're no longer in Eastern Europe; they are now primarily in uh, North America and Israel. And that's a whole story that we can perhaps talk about uh, in a bit.
1: Before we unpack um, the larger themes of the book, um, I would like to turn to the book uh, itself now. And as you mentioned, it's structured chronologically uh, in three main sections, the 18th, 19th, and 20th sec- uh, centuries, um, that include these sort of thematic changes. Um I would like to now ask you um, some questions about geographies, personalities, and some of the dynasties of Hasidism uh, to give a sense of the locality and the variation of the movement over time. Um, So let's begin in in the 18th century, uh, where the book begins, um, with the mythological founder of Hasidism, Israel Baal Shem Tov, uh, and his student, who, as you argue in your book, um, would become, in a sense, the architect of the movement, um, the man who would be known as the Maggit of Mezrich. Who were they? Um, what were their beliefs? And what were their contributions to the movement? Yeah, so
0: I've already talked about the, the Besht or Israel Baal Shem Tov um, and his primary ideas. Um, I would say that the Magid actually is a very interesting figure. He has absorbed um, the Neoplatonic ideas of Kabbalism. Uh, so there, it's a much more philosophical Approach to these ideas um, uh, in his in his uh, writings. He he didn't really write anything, but like in most Hasidic books, his uh, teachings were oral, and they were written down by by actually one of his students and published later. Um, that, by the way, is an interesting subject. The Hasidic book, um, uh, even though the movement is in many ways an oral movement, a movement of sermons of of oral teachings. Um, the uh, Hasidic book begins, uh, uh, first Hasidic book of 1781, and we already have in the uh, that decade and the next decade um, a remarkable library uh, that accompanies the, uh, the oral teachings. Now, the Magid, I don't want to give the impression... Um, that the Magid is the architect of the movement, as you put it. Yes, he is very, very important, and his students, Avraham of Kalich, um, uh, uh, Avraham of Trisk, uh, Schneer Zalman of Liadi, his youngest disciple, uh, Levi Yitzchak of Berditcha, these are very important figures, uh, to be sure, uh, in the later movement. Uh, and yet there are also other figures who are not part of his circle, who go off and develop their own uh, circles uh, of Hasidism. And so it, it's important to Aaron of Carlin, for example, uh, is one of those. Um, so the movement actually, I mean, one can actually use a kind of network theory to uh, explain the, the, the spread of the movement. It doesn't spread from one center necessarily as important as Meserich was uh to the the later movement um there are other centers there are other networks um there uh, one cannot generalize therefore uh, about uh, about hasidism in this period um, so uh, i i want to talk for a moment about shneir zalman because he's a very important figure um Uh, not only in terms of his own movement, but in terms of the uh, later social structure of Hasidism. So Schneer Zalman, the youngest disciple of the Magid of Mezrich, um, is from Belarus, uh, near Lithuania. Um, He uh, he begins to attract followers um, in the uh, 1780s and uh, 90s. He develops a court system of his own, but in his case, he doesn't actually like to receive followers, uh, and he develops as a way, as an alternative, uh, a system of emissaries, uh, shluchim they're called in Chabad. The, the term still exists today. It refers to missionaries who go out all over the world and try to convert Jews into uh, followers of Chabad. Um but he does this because he he does he feels inundated with with uh, pilgrims, and he um, sends out these emissaries to bring his teachings and his inst- instructions, uh, not just theoretical teachings, but instructions about how about practices, rituals. Um, and so this creates a different kind of network, a network uh, in which, uh, the movement can exist without constant uh, pilgrimage to the leader, um, and consequently, Chabad actually is one of the most geographically dispersed movements in um, the northern part of the Pale of Settlement uh, in in Russia, um, and it's because of that that in the late nineteenth century, well, actually, even in the mid nineteenth century. Um, leaders of chabad can be seen are seen by the russian government as leaders of hasidism altogether and even leaders of the jewish community uh, uh in, in general uh so he's very important uh, chabad also uh when when he dies um uh, 18 uh 12 he um uh Chabad uh, forms a uh, dynasty. So there's struggle over this, but nevertheless, the dynastic principle becomes central to Chabad. Uh, It will also be central to other Hasidic groups, but Chabad is maybe the earliest to establish it in a very strong way. And that dynastic principle is what is going to um, uh, define Hasidism largely in the 19th century. Um, so I know you wanted to ask about specific areas. Um, uh, if we move to the 19th century, well, let me go back to the 18th century to give a, a, some sense of geography here. So the, the cradle of Hasidism is in the Southeastern corner of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, Podolia, and to some degree Volinia. Um, uh, and it spreads very gradually in the 18th century to uh, the north, uh, that's where Schneer is, Belarus. Uh, there are some outposts in Poland as well. Um, but it is primarily uh, located in the southeastern uh, area. Um, in the 19th century, though, we have a spread of Hasidism that is quite different. Um, it spreads in the um, Russian areas of the Pale of Settlement, and um, uh, further to the north and, and, and elsewhere, uh, but it primarily spreads to the northwest. It's, it spreads into the area of Poland that is taken over by the uh, Austrian Empire, an area called Galicia. Uh, it spreads into what is called Central Poland or Congress Poland. Uh, to define these terms, I'd have to go into a whole history lesson, but these are the areas of Poland that are partially self-governing, under the Russian Empire. Um, And so we get uh, areas that where Hasidism was pretty much, you know, only barely uh, existent in the 18th century now become actually the centers of Hasidism in the 19th century. So that geographical spread is very important. And each of these areas develops um, somewhat different uh, characteristics. Uh, in terms of the uh, the forms of Hasidism.
1: Uh, another fascinating figure that you write about in, in the volume um, is the figure of Nachman of Bratislav. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about him and about his uh, beliefs and the Hasidis of Bratislav?
0: So Bratislav is, of course, very known today for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, first of all, uh, there are a number of uh, historians of Hasidism who have um, written um, very passionately uh, about uh, the thought of Nachman of Breslov, which was an extraordinarily interesting uh, and unusual uh, thought. Um, uh, people like Arthur Green, who has actually uh, wrote the afterword to our book. Um, uh, so Nachman has become... A kind of a very popular thinker, include among people who are not necessarily Hasidim themselves, but are uh, fascinated by Hasidism, uh, Jewish people in the Jewish Renewal movement. Uh, Nachman is seen as a kind of, um, kind of an existentialist um, Hasidic thinker. Uh, uh, Green has compared him to the. Uh, the Protestant uh, religious existentialist, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, And he has a great resonance resonance in modernity. This this interest in in Nachman actually starts with Martin Buber, uh, whose first book on Hasidism, 1906, was The Tales of Rabbi Nachman. Um, And so Nachman has this this kind of uh, cachet. The other reason that Bratislav is seen today as a kind of central part of Hasidism is um, it's become a kind of a movement of its own in the last couple of decades. Um, it uh, A Bratislav tradition is to make pilgrimage on Rosh Hashanah on Jewish New Year to uh, Uman in Ukraine to where he is buried. In other words, pilgrimage to his grave. Um, and that pilgrimage was impossible under the Soviet U- Union. Uh, once uh, communism fell; uh, it became possible, and um, that pilgrimage now is a mass phenomenon. Uh, some thirty or forty thousand people come there every year. Um, who are these people? Well, some of them have affiliated with Bratslav. Some of them are fellow travelers. Some of them are just along for the ride for the sex and drugs, uh, according to some reports. Uh, but most of them are there for a spiritual experience. And yet, what's fascinating is this become a mass phenomenon now. So you would get the impression from these two um, uh, uh, rather recent uh, developments that Bratislav is a really important movement in Hasidism. But in fact, Bratislav historically was tiny. Um, Nachman himself, who died in 1810, had a circle of followers, a very small circle, it seems. Um, it was seen in in his day as a deviant form of Hasidism, as bizarre, uh, with bizarre practices like going into the woods and and screaming as you prayed to God. Um, In the 19th century, uh, Bratislav, which continued to flourish in very, very small numbers, um, was persecuted by other Hasidic groups um, because the Bratislav Hasidim Continue to revere Nachman as their leader, and they do not have a dynasty. He had no; his son died in eighteen o six, because he uh, had no uh, successor. Um, the Bratislav Hasidim were called the toita Hasidim, which means the dead Hasidim, the Hasidim who worship a dead leader, and uh, and they were persecuted, even sometimes, you know, uh, with with violence. Um, So they persist in tiny groups uh, with leaders who are not Rebbes, who are kind of people who carry on Bratislav traditions, uh, uh, manuscripts that are and and sayings and teachings that uh, are said to go back to Rabbi Nachman. Um, But uh, this is a movement, again, in, in a way, it's a kind of microcosm of Hasidism. Uh, in the when we come to the 20th century, <clears throat> essentially destroyed in the interwar period with with, with Bolshevism, uh, they reestablished their um, pilgrimage uh, to the city of Lublin uh, in uh, uh, eastern Poland um, because they're not able to go to Uman. Um, you know, many of them die in the Holocaust, and yet here we have them resurrected, as it were as an extraordinarily vital, um, vital movement.
1: If we move, uh, to the 19th century, um, one of the fascinating figures, uh, your book covers is Rabbi Israel Friedman of Ruzhin. Um, so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about him.
0: So Israel of Ruzhin, uh, <clears throat> a descendant of the Magid of Mezrich, um, uh, establishes a court, uh, in the, uh, starting, I think in the, in the 18 teens. Um, and he, um, he's very, very different. He, he, um, he does not claim to be learned in any sense. Um, he does not use Kabbalah as the foundation for his teachings, which had been the case for many of the 18th century teachers. He now sets a different course, which we will find among, um, Uh, many Hasidic uh, leaders in the 19th century, namely Kabbalah, becomes less and less important in their uh, teachings. In the case of Israel, of Roshan, it is virtually absent. Um, He is um, a kind of pastoral figure. That is, he is seen as uh, someone who uh, gives spiritual comfort and support to his followers, uh, but not with some kind of profound or esoteric teachings. Uh, Israel Aversion um, develops uh, the regal court. Uh, he's one of the first to develop this type of court, um, which is to say, a very opulent court with, uh, you know, uh, many buildings um, and uh, where the, the experience of pilgrimage is is an p- experience of. Uh, entering into the domain of someone who is like Jewish aristocracy. Um, Israel um, uh, is involved, is accused of uh, being involved in the murder of two informers in the uh, late 1830s. <clears throat> um, he's in prison for a while. Um, and he then flees across the border to the um, uh, Austrian uh, Part of uh, of Eastern Europe, the Galicia, uh, reestablishes his court, which had been in Russian, <clears throat> which is in Russia, reestablishes it in the town of Sadagora, uh, and from there his um, uh, his descendants uh, establish uh, uh, a network of courts um, in a number of different places, and this becomes a very very important branch of nineteenth century Hasidism. Um, <clears throat> these people, <clears throat> these leaders, excuse me, uh, flee to Vienna during World War One, Um, and then some of them from there go to uh, Palestine, some to the, uh, United States. This, this very, very important movement, uh, the Ruzhan Sadagora dynasty, uh, it still exists, but it no longer has the same kind of, um, uh, Numerical weight that it had uh, in the uh, in the nineteenth century.
1: If we transition from uh, maybe discussing individual charismatic leaders um, to discussing some of the dynasties or movements in general, um, one of the dynasties that plays a large role in your narrative during the nineteenth century is that of the Belz Hasidim. Um, so I was wondering if you can tell us what makes them distinctive and a little bit about their their thought and history.
0: Yeah, so Belz is established um, in uh, the, uh, somewhere around 1815 or so, Shalom uh, uh, Rokeach of Belts. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, so this is a purely 19th century uh, uh, Hasidic group. Um, and it is distinguished actually by um, quite, uh, one might even say fanatical. Uh, adherence to not only Jewish law, all Hasidic groups are uh, followers of Jewish law, but uh, but also customs. Um, and it is seen as one of the most conservative of the Hasidic groups. Um, it has a major influence on uh, the development of Hasidism in Hungary and... Um, in the nineteenth century, this is a Hasidism that uh, also is frequently seen as very, very strict uh, in terms of both custom and law. Um, and I think that uh, uh, we describe the uh, wedding of a uh, a son from the Chernobyl dynasty in Russia and a daughter from belts, and how uh, he how odd he found. The family and the of his, uh, you know, of of his wife and the and all the customs that they practiced. This was something very foreign to him, Uh, and this gives you a very good sense of the fact that just because you're a Hasid doesn't mean that all Hasidic groups are alike, Uh, and some of their practices may seem very, very odd and foreign. And 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 one finds that uh, in this account. Of um, uh, of this uh, Chernobyl uh, Hasid with his wedding yeah, wedding and belts, belts. By the way, um, uh, the, the Rebbe of Belts uh, actually uh, uh, survives the Holocaust. He flees with his brother in law uh, into Hungary, and from Hungary, he's able to go to Palestine um, in 1944. Uh, and so he reestablishes um, uh, Belts in, uh, in the state of Israel, well, Palestine actually, before the state of Israel. Um, and interestingly, Belts, although it has this very, very conservative uh, history, is actually seen in the state of Israel today uh, among the different Hasidic groups as uh, a Hasidism that is most open and accepting of the state. Because other Hasidic groups, like Satmar, for example, reject the state altogether. Belts is a little bit more open. Um, but Belts is also reestablished. It, it was also a kind of regal Hasidism in the 19th century. And uh, uh, relatively recently, they have uh, built a synagogue, which is a replica of what existed in the 19th century, which may be the largest synagogue in the state of
1: Israel. If we can take a tangent for a moment, um one of the things that uh, sort of is an overarching theme um, in many sections of the book, um, and, and you touch on in different geographies and with regards to different dynasties, um, is the relationship of women to the Hasidic court and Hasidic ideas, uh, and as well as the unique role of the family in Hasidism. Um, so I was wondering if you can reflect on that a little bit. Um, what is the role of women uh, in Hasidism, and, and what does the family look like?
0: A fascinating subject. Um In the 18th century, Hasidism modeled itself on um, a traditional um, uh, Jewish or institution within the Jewish community called the Hevra, a usually translated confraternity, like the Hevra Kadisha. In other words, a a group that came together for a particular purpose. It could be to perform the mitzvah of... uh, of burial, or it could be just as a study uh, Hevra. The Hasidic groups in the local communities, um, that is not where the, the Rebbe was necessarily, but uh, local communities, Hasidim would have their own prayer uh, house called the Shtibel, uh, and they formed themselves as a Hevra. Now, Hevras never include women. So it was more or less a given that in its origins, Hasidism is not a, is a purely male movement. Um, when we get to the, the 19th century, the picture changes somewhat, but not that much. Um, women begin to make pilgrimage to the court for, to ask for, uh, you know, uh, intercession on their behalf in childbirth and illness and so forth. Um, but that does not mean that women are uh, really hasidim or hasidot would be the pri- proper grammatical form. Um, it is likely that Hasidism is still seen as a male movement. We have a wonderful picture done by a French uh, artist uh, who came through Eastern Europe in the mid-19th century and drew pictures of Jews, and he draws a picture of a what he says, a Hasid and his wife, not a Hasid and a Hasida So in the 19th century, um, the Hasidic family is a... Yes, they probably follow certain practices, maybe even certain food ways that are characteristic of their Hasidic group. And in that sense, the Hasidic family is partaking in Hasidism. Um, Some of the particular practices or customs that are true for a a Hasidic group, like how you wash your hands before the meal, those probably were practiced on the family level. But um, it's probably not correct to say that uh, women were a part of the Hasidic movement. This changes in the 19, in the 20th century, uh, probably mostly after World War II. Uh, Chabad plays an important role in this because the seventh Rebbe of Chabad, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, um, who is not able to have children, um, makes women into a very, very central part of his of his mission. Um, he, was, he had a messianic kind of uh, outlook and he uh, uh, drafted women into central roles in bringing the Messiah. People in New York will re- uh, recall that when he was still alive, uh, the bottom, very bottom of the front page of the New York Times in tiny letters every Friday would say, Jewish women and girls light Shabbat candles. This was part of his messianic uh, campaign. So women become very important. And today when Chabad sends out their shluchim, their emissaries, they are invariably married. They are accompanied by their wives who play, I would say, a pretty much equal role to the men. In in their activities. But even in other groups, I think uh, women have become, uh, now do see themselves very much as uh, Hasidim. We had an interesting debate in our group. This gives you a sense of the inner workings of the group. Um, uh, one member of our 20th century team said, uh, women are not Hasidim, even today. Another member of our group, uh, the sociologist Sam Heilman, uh, said, yes, they are. Well, how to settle this dispute? Well, Sam is very well connected with uh, various Hasidic courts, so he he sends an email to the gabai of the Mundkacharebi. Now, uh, they're not supposed to be on the internet, but they're all on the internet, and uh, he sends him the question: Are women Hasidim? The answer comes back 30 seconds later: Yes. So I think that, I don't know if that really establishes it for all Hasidic courts, and it may be actually when women come to the Rebbe to ask for something, in some cases they're not allowed to have a, a, a one, one-on-one audience. They have to pass their request through the gabai, through the assistant. Um, but I think women have now become very much a part of uh, Hasidim, uh, Hasidism, and they and they identify as such, not just as, as Hasidot generally, but the... Hasidah of the Munkachar Rebbe or the Hasidah of the Belzer Rebbe and so forth.
1: Another fascinating Hasidut in uh, the 19th century is that of the Kotzkers, of Menachem Mendel of of Kotzk, um, and the various groups that arose uh, from him, from his students. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this story?
0: Yes. So, uh, Menachem Mendel of Kotzk um, was a uh, very unusual leader. He was extremely demanding uh, of his followers, very harsh. Um, he um, And he secluded himself for many, many years and wouldn't meet with him at all. Followed an extremely ascetic kind of lifestyle. And, um, and he represents the sort of one of the sort of ascetic poles of hasidism. We spoke of the Baal Shem Tov earlier of you know the worship god through the material world. Well, the, the Kotzker is a, is really on the other end of the spectrum. Um he had several disciples um and they went off to found their own um uh groups um uh the uh one of the groups is Izbitz. Izbit, Um, and, uh, their, their leader, um, is a kind of a, he propounds a kind of, um, uh, doctrine, which has become rather attractive to, um, modern Jews because it looks like it's antinomian. That is that everything that God wills is true and correct. And so if God wills you to violate the commandments, that too is a, somehow endorsed by God. Now, th- this is probably an incorrect modern interpretation of his teachings, which were never intended to be antinomian. And yet there's something really interesting there, appealing, just like Bratislav, to modern people. But his Hasidism was kind of a, a very small. Um, much more significant in terms of numbers was Gere. Gere. Um, the Ger Hasidim uh, become certainly by the um, interwar period the the largest Hasidic group in interwar Poland. Um, their uh, Rebbe is able to flee uh, in 1940 to Palestine, and he reestablishes Gera there. It is now, I believe, probably either the largest or maybe the second largest in uh, in Israel. Um, and actually, in the post-war period, Ger, which is a quite down-to-earth, uh, worldly movement, uh, develops a kind of a very ascetic practices of, of its own, uh, the so-called uh, holiness regulations, uh, in which uh, gear men are not supposed to ever address their wives by their first names, by their names at all. Um, they're not supposed to look into each other's eyes. The wife is supposed to follow her husband behind him. Uh, they must only have sexual relations once a month. It's a very extreme kind of s- s- sexual asceticism that one doesn't really see in earlier Hasidism. There are a couple of other Hasidic groups that have gone this route as well. Um, and this is a interesting turn in Gare. Um, why is a is is a subject for speculation why this developed in, in post-war uh, Israel. But but it did, um, possibly to distinguish themselves from other Hasidic groups and partly as a, a way of uh, distinguishing themselves from the secular uh, Jewish
1: state. Uh, on that note, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what's attractive to Hasidism. It seems like it's um, a large movement that gains followers and, and keeps its followers together. Um how does it keep people engaged what's attractive about, about it
0: uh, well the the leadership uh, um the rebbs um are generally speaking not always uh, charismatic figures figures who uh, attract because of their spiritual sort of aura Uh sometimes that aura uh is attached to a dynasty in other words the present you know, holder of the dynasty may not himself be charismatic, but the dynasty as such has acquired a kind of mystical aura. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the features, important features. The other feature is that it, it creates a sense of community across space, but actually across both time and space. Um, you are connected with uh, every other Chabad Hasid around the world. Um, you may come together uh, when you make pilgrimage to the court, um, and it creates this sense of identity and, and, and uh, attachment that is, I think, especially in a world that is um, now global, um, it creates the sense of a global community. Uh, so these are, I think, two of the features um, uh,
1: that make class attractive. And what do you think the opposition to Hasidism is from its origins until the modern day? There have been many types of opposition to it. Um, Why do you think it causes this kind of uh, resistance?
0: Well, in the the 18th century, Hasidism was uh, the resistance, as I indicated earlier, was uh, actually quite uh, sporadic and local. Um, it, It was seen in Jewish history as a widespread movement of opposition that's almost certainly untrue uh when the Goan of Vilna dies uh he, <coughs> in the 1790s, he um m- the opposition more or less vanishes um it is then as i said earlier the the place of th- this uh rabbinic uh, opposition to hasidism is taken by the Jewish Enlightenment, which sees Hasidism as it begins to see itself as a movement of resistance to modernity. Um, So uh, in the 19th century, there is quite a bit of this kind of um, modern enlightened opposition. Although even there, one must be careful because the Jewish Enlightenment in Eastern Europe is a relatively small movement for most of the 19th century. We think of it as a major movement because they produce books, but you know we're talking about hundreds or maybe in the low thousands of adherents. It's only when secularization and modernization really set in, in Eastern Europe in the, the latter part of the 19th century that opposition to Hasidism uh, becomes a more widespread phenomenon. And then what happens, interestingly, is that in the early 20th century, um, this opposition such as it is, is accompanied by a neo-Hasidic movement. People like Martin Buber, uh, the Hebrew writer Mikhail Yosef uh the Yiddish writer Yud Lamed Peretz. Um, these uh, figures now um, become nostalgic for Hasidism. They reject the Hasidism they see around them as degenerate, but they go back to the 18th century and see something there that can furnish a secular Jewish renewal. In the 20th century, and I think we we see that today as well. The um, uh, movement of Jewish Renewal uh, draws inspiration from um, from how it sees Hasidism, sometimes ahistorically, Um, uh, but uh, Hasidism continues to exert an extraordinary fascination, um, and. Maybe just to uh, conclude with this, the uh, one of the things that struck us since the publication of the book, we've had a number of public events, uh, one out of all places, the Smithsonian uh, in Washington, D.C., and it was sold out. 160 people showed up for it. None of them was a Hasid, by the way. Uh, we had an event in Berkeley, uh, usually seen as a bastion of secular left-wing Jews, but we had 100 people show up. Fascination with this subject. This, this is a, uh, I think, itself a very interesting subject. The, the modern, uh, the modern fascination with this movement.
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I um, I guess I'd like to conclude with a third section of the book um, and briefly cover cover some of the topics you talk about there. Um, and that's Hasidism in the twentieth century. Um, there are a number of of dynasties that you cover more heavily in the twentieth century. Um, we began to talk a little bit about Ger earlier, um, about the Kotzke Rebbe. Um, so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the dynasties of Ger and uh, that of Slonim as well.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that Ger has developed these uh, Kedusha, or holiness regulations. Um, and uh, and that is uh, one of the ways in which they distinguish themselves from other Hasidic groups. Um They are – it's really interesting. The uh, studies that have been done of gear, sociological studies, you would think that because of these regulations that women would be, you know, uh, feel themselves oppressed. But they don't, uh, actually. Uh, The women of Gare are among the most active in the um, secular world um, in in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, working outside the home, um, and uh, uh, it's a, it's an interesting. I mean, I don't know what the connection is between the Kedusha and that and that particular phenomenon. Uh, Geir in interwar Poland was a very worldly movement. Um, the Rebbe was a important political figure. This is something we haven't spoken of that there are a number of Hasidic leaders in both the nineteenth and twentieth century who have been politically very very active. Um, uh, Isaac of Wurka, Yitzhak of in the 19th century in, in central Poland was a very important figure who was seen by the government as a kind of, uh, uh speaking for the Jews as a whole, uh, Shalom Dovber, uh, Schneerson at the end of the 19th century, the <clears throat> fifth Chabad Rebbe, uh, also seen by the Russian government as a, as a central, uh, leader, um, and and in the in the interwar period uh uh the the leaders of GER fulfilled that role um uh in the post war period um Ger is quite active politically in israel so is uh, belts um because these are two groups that don't entirely um reject the state they're willing to support political parties like the uh Agudat Yisrael or Degel Torah, um, depending on the on the period, uh, uh, that are ultra-Orthodox parties, but they take part in, uh, uh, at least to some degree, in the government uh, uh, in certain instances. Um, so uh, those groups are very important. Um, but the other group that's very important and emerges, it starts in the interwar period, we haven't spoken of them, is Satmar. So Satmar <coughs> is a new dynasty. It's founded by a Yoel or a Yoelish title bomb. um <clears throat> His uh, older brother is the Rebbe in Siget. Uh and in those days, uh, if you wanted to found a new dynasty, you had to go elsewhere. And so he migrates to uh Satmar, the town of Satmar <coughs> Satmaru, uh in Transylvania. And he um uh, uh he is a part of the sort of very extreme ultra-Orthodoxy of Hungary between the wars, um, a ultra-Orthodoxy led by the Rebbe of Munkac. Um, and uh, this is a ultra-Orthodoxy that opposes Zionism uh, tooth and nail. Uh, after the war, of course, ironically, the, uh, the Satmar Rebbe is saved by the Zionists in uh, the famous train of Rudolf Kostner in 1944. Um, so he survives. Uh, and he then comes to New York, where he rebuilds his movement, basically from scratch, um, and creates a um, the largest Hasidic group in the world today is Satmar. Uh, they're and, uh, headquarters is in, uh, now in two places in New York. They have a, a, uh, a township in upstate New York called Curiocio. Uh, they're also in Williamsburg. Um, he was very astute. He uh, told his followers to buy real estate in Brooklyn, uh, after the war when it was dirt cheap. And, um, as a result, they control a lot of New York real estate, uh, Brooklyn real estate to be more precise. Um, and he is an adamant opponent of Zionism. Uh, he will not cooperate with uh, the state at all. Um, and uh, uh, when he dies, he, there is a succession fight, which is still going on, actually. Uh, and because you cannot um, create a new Hasidic group with a new name, it's a sort of preservation of the brand, uh, the names of Hasidic groups must be the t- uh, towns in Eastern Europe from which they originated. Those towns have now become holy geography, um, and so the Satmar is now divided between two Satmar courts, um, uh, two Satmar leaders, uh, um, Zalman and Aaron, uh, and so um, uh, that movement is, uh, is is very much worth uh, uh, mentioning because of its. Uh, its importance not only numerically, but also politically. It, it represents this very continually continuing extreme anti-Zionism.
1: Obviously, uh, the event in Hasidic history in the 20th century is the Holocaust. Uh, and we've spoken at some length about its effects um, on Hasidic life and the destruction of um, many of the communities that existed in Europe before the war. Um, But I would like to focus briefly on the two geographic centers that have arisen since the war, um, those of America and Israel, um, and perhaps reflect a little bit further on on Satmar in the American case. Uh, Could you compare these two seats of Hasidic life, um, Hasidic life in America and Hasidic life in Israel?
0: So, you know, what's what's interesting is that um, uh, Hasidism never really existed in a fully democratic setting. Um, It's true that the Austro-Hungarian Empire becomes semi-democratic, and uh, especially after 1867, the Jews are emancipated. Um, But nevertheless, um, uh, the situation that we have today uh, since the war is entirely new. Um, Hasidism, either in a uh, Jewish state or in a liberal pluralistic democracy like America. And what's remarkable is that Hasidism has successfully adapted to these two different environments. Um, in Israel, um, even though they don't take part centrally in the, in the government, they have succeeded in um, uh, using the Israeli welfare state very much to their benefit. Um, the uh, draft exemptions that Ben Gurion issued back in the early 1950s—he thought it was only going to be 400—and now it's you know in the tens of thousands. And This is still a problem that Israel struggles with, but this has made it possible for these Hasidic groups to uh, flourish uh, in in a uh, in a Jewish state, um, a state which they don't fully recognize. Uh, in America. Um, it's very interesting to see the way in which uh, Hasidic groups participate in uh, American politics. They, because they vote as a bloc, they vote the way the Rebbe tells them to vote. Um, It's incumbent on local politicians to uh, pay their respects to the different courts and to try to curry their favor um, because of the votes that they can deliver. And here too, um, Uh, use of the American welfare state has been very advantageous to the Hasidim. So so what we see here is a movement with a remarkable ability to adapt. If it were purely a anti-modern throwback to the Middle Ages, it's unlikely they could have adapted so well to these very changed circumstances. But they have and I think it's it's a example of the remarkable flexibility and ability to evolve of the Hasidic movement.
1: I'm sorry we don't have more time together Um, although we've covered much of the scope of the book and I hope given a sense of its comprehensiveness. um, The volume is a treasure trove of social history and stories filled with fascinating figures and political intrigues um, that covers not only Hasidism but modern Jewish history more generally. On this note, I would like to uh, thank Professor Beal very much for joining us today on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about his new book, Hasidism, A New History, a collaborative collaborative effort written together with six other scholars and published in 2018 by the Princeton University Press.